it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, well, welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, so glad you're here. It's 9-11, so we're all going to be so upbeat about a day like this. Uh, but we're going to be able to chronicle it, go through it, make sure we don't forget it. Uh, Nikki Haley's coming on at the bottom of the hour, and Gerard Baker's uh, in studio, editor at large of the Wall Street Journal and host of the Wall Street Journal uh, at large on Fridays on t- on FBN, and uh, um, an author of a new book called American Breakdown: Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions, and How We, we Can Rebuild the Confidence. And before we get to Gerard, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. Really, what this trip is about. It was less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. We're not looking to hurt China. Uh, sincerely, we're all better off if China does well. Really? U.S. versus China. Let's just face it. We're, we're, we are in uh, a battle with them. That's what the president's trip was about at the G20, a Carter alliance with India and Saudi Arabia, now upgrading relations with Vietnam. Just admit it, Mr. President. Why dance around it? They're a belligerent nation and only respect power and strength. So show them power and strength. Number two. I mean, what week of pregnancy should abortion access be cut off? We need to put back in place the protections of Roe versus Wade. You we need to put back the protections that are in Roe v. Wade. Do you need to be more precise? To, I am being precise. Unbelievable. That is Kamala Harris handling abortion. 2024. Trump leads everywhere, but not often anywhere. Because he doesn't go out much, unlike his last two campaigns. The former president has been methodically methodical about his appearances, interviews, and rallies. Why? We'll find out. Meanwhile, President Biden's numbers are so weak his entire party seems worried. And his VP is causing even more concern. You just heard why. Number one. We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's speculated that the plane is as big as a 737. Which oh, most yeah. disturbing, Edie, I think, is the time of morning is when people pour fall. into that building. 22 years ago today, we went under attack as a country. We'll not forget the lives lost. On 9-11, 2,977, 2,753 in New York alone. Many are still dying from 9-11-related injury uh, deaths. 43 firefighters' names added to the memorial. Cancer-related deaths, of course. 271,000 living with 9-11-related cancer. And their fight goes on. And with me right now is Gerard Baker. Gerard, where were you? Well, by weird coincidence, I was actually in Japan. I was I was covering the U.S. Treasury at the time, and I was traveling with the then U.S. Treasury Secretary, Paul O'Neill. He'd just gone on a big trip to Asia. We'd just landed in Japan. So I was out of the country, and I called the desk, you know, back in London to say, you know, we're going to be filing on this. And they said, you better turn on your TV and see what happened. I turned on my TV. I sat up all night in Tokyo, which was obviously daytime New York time, um, just watching these horrible scenes, with terrible scenes with actually, interestingly, in the company of the Treasury officials. And, and, you know, we were just it was just like everybody, you were just you couldn't believe what you were seeing. You couldn't believe the horror of it. And, you know, that lives with me to this day. Yeah, uh, with everyone. Are you concerned that people forget about it, people not born then, people that weren't in New York or the Pentagon then? Of course. I mean, people do. You know, time passes. 
it doesn't heal, as people, as, as the saying says. It certainly doesn't heal the, the wounds of those who lost people or those people who, as you said, Brian, in your introduction, are, are still suffering. But it does, it does recede into the memory. And as you yeah. say, I mean, I've got kids who were not born on, uh, on, on 9-11, and for them it's, a, it's, a, it's history. But it's really important, Brian, that we continue to remind people what happened on that day. The other thing I'd like to remember is, you know, I remember, Brian, you do well, how the country came together after 9-11. And I worry now, as I look at the state of the country, you worry, you know, God forbid anything like that would happen again but are we ever going to see anything that would bring the country together united in grief but united in resolution and determination and love for this country uh, and respect for this country and the desire to avenge what had happened to this country i really worry with our politics at the moment whether we'd ever get that kind of unity see i think so i'm already seeing things turn around if you i mean little things for example yesterday queen latifah singing the national anthem yeah uh you have both sides of the huge flag in front yeah uh you know, you didn't see NYPD hats, but you saw FDNY hats. They're yeah. still afraid to be pro-police, but yeah. which is ridiculous. But I, I think also I'm, I'm watching the Hall of Fame game with the NFL, too. And I'm watching an African-American uh, player, I forgot his name, um, singing the national anthem in tribute mm. to other players uh, that had uh, one had just passed. I go, wait, you know, three years ago that was going to happen. I think you're. I mean, there certainly are encouraging signs. I mean, there's exactly as you say things like that, and I think the way the uh, there are, you know, I think some acknowledgement of the extremism of the left in the last few years is starting to seep in, and people are, you know, I mean, look. By the way, there was that amazing story at the weekend of that, you know, that defund the police uh, activist, I think, in Minneapolis, who ended up getting, you know, attacked, uh, and now calls for, you know, surprise, surprise. Once, once, you know, once proper policing, we've seen more and more of that. These people who in that extreme, I mean, we were in a crazy, I do agree. Here's where I agree with you. We were in a crazy moment that summer of 2020, Brian, Reimagining three years ago, it was a crazy moment and it led to some incredibly dangerous and damaging things. And I think we have come back from that. Absolutely. And some of that lunacy, but I still don't think we've come all the way. I think we've got a long way to go. So the president of the United States goes to the G20. And he uh, goes to India, think he should, uh, at which time, as I could tell, he does not pressure India at all to stop buying cheap Russian oil or at least level it off because then they're reselling it to Europe, which is crazy, shows a totally insincerity. I don't see any uh, pressure on India either to get out of the BRIC alliance or something to, to that nature. But the president of the United States wants to unite the world around China. Uh, because they see, India sees the threat, Vietnam sees the threat, Australia sees the threat, Japan sees the threat, South Korea sees the, th- uh, the threat. Here's the president in Hanoi, Vietnam, as he announced an upgrade in the relationship. Cut 20. Really what this trip was about, it was less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away. Everybody knows what it's all about. We're not looking to hurt China. Uh, sincerely. We're all better off if China does well. Is that true? You know, it's the ad- no. I don't think it is actually. I mean, that's that's the honest look. look China is our uh, is our strategic rival. Um, it's a potential adversary. Um, look, I mean, yeah, you know, we, of course, you know, we want we want to see. You know, we, we we would like the U.S. economy benefits clearly when China does well. There's no question about that. It has done. China's been buying our treasury bonds for years. Um, you know, we buy a lot of cheap goods from China. We do quite well. Our, our, our iPhones that we all have, you know, we wouldn't be able to use them if we had China. So of course there are some benefits to us. But I think that's the wrong. 
approach, Brian, because and I think it's the approach that led to so many problems that, that the idea was that you, you know, over the last 20 years, when, frankly, the US appeased China and said, no, no, we want China to grow and we're going to let them do what they want. And we, of course, they'll eventually come around to playing by our rules because they will. That's the way the world works. Well, we let them into the WTO and they'll realize they don't want to go, go the wrong way. We were, take, we were taken for a ride by them. You know, on this idea started with Bill Clinton. I'm sorry, it continued under George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And I have to say, you know, I have some reservations about some of the things Donald Trump's done, but his recognition of the challenge that China posed and the first president in the post-Cold War period to actually say, you know what, China is a strategic threat. It's a, it's a challenge that we've got to confront and we're going to deal with it. We've got to, and we, we are no longer going to continue with this story that we've got to help China grow because if it grows, it's going to become a, it's going to become a democratic And the nation. Belt and Road Program is also being exposed as flat-out extortion. Totally, this yeah. is an opportunity. That's with the Saudi Arabia corridor to India was about is let, let's offer an alternative. Let's get the World Bank involved yeah. and let's see if we can provide an alternative. Only we're not going to look to destroy the Congo or, uh, or developing nations. We're going to look to build. We're yeah. not looking to take it over. No, and I think that's where China, China's made a lot of mistakes in the last few years. Even as it's grown, it's true. Its economy is now really in trouble because they've gone back to basically the communist approach. They adopted the reason the Chinese economy grew so rapidly after, you know, from the 1980s onwards is they basically jettisoned communism. They basically said, no, we're going to have free markets. Xi Jinping came back, came in in 2013 and has basically turned the clock back. Nationalized now, now. successful companies. Nationalized it. So they've gone, they've made economic mistakes. They've made strategic mistakes, as you say. The Belt and Road Initiative, which was intended to sort of build this network of, of countries that essentially will be dependent on China, has created tremendous resentment. It's been extortion. Uh, there's been a lot of extortion and corruption, as you say. A lot of countries are in Africa and the Southeast Asia are really resenting it. They've made diplomatic mistakes in terms of this aggressive hostility towards Southeast Asia, the South China Sea. So they've made a lot of mistakes. We have a great opportunity, Brian, both because of their economic weakness and the diplomatic and political mistakes they've made. And the right thing to do is to, you know, the, but the, the right thing to do is to is to is to capitalize on those errors to build an alliance. And I give credit for the, to the Biden administration for bringing like Japan and Korea together, AUKUS, which is Australia, the UK, the US together. Build more of those alliances, but let's have let's not keep up this. Uh, the, the, one of the problems at the moment, Brian, is you've got this mixed messages again. You know, Janet Yellen's been talking about uh, a cooperative we relationship with China. Gina Raimondo, Gina Raimondo was there whenever it was last week, saying we don't see confrontation. You have to, you can't do that because the Chinese understand weakness and they understand division and they understand. When you are not clear and coherent about what you're trying to do, we have to be a much more. We have to send much clearer and much more coherent signals about the way. The so you, you talk in your book about how we're divided. Don't you think China's playing a role in that? Totally. Yeah, not only reveling, but playing a role. Of course it is. Yeah. I mean, so we know. For a start, that China. First of all, we know China's espionage activities in the United States are extensive, and we're not really getting to grips with them. By the way, not just in the United States. Very interesting story in the week in the, at the weekend in the UK, of, of a researcher for a member of the government in the UK who's been identified as a Chinese spy. They are, you know, they're they're, they're doing extraordinary things. They are they're building these extraordinary sort of basically China um, friendly structures in university campuses, and of course, our universities happy to take Chinese money. Frankly, half of them share Chinese communist ideology. Some of these leaders anyway, very happy to go along with that. So yeah, China has absolutely been exploiting the weaknesses in the US, exploiting the divisions in the US. And we've got to, you know, we, we, we've now, this is, this is existential for the United States. This is the biggest threat that the United States has faced. I think the United States can overcome it. The United States is the greatest nation in the history of the world. It's still got the greatest economy. It's got the greatest military. But we are weakened at the moment, both by our divisions. I talk about this in my book, this idea of trust, that nobody trusts anything anymore. You don't trust the government. You don't trust the media. You don't trust universities. We are weakened by our divisions. We're weakened by a lack of trust. And we've really got to get, you know, it's time. 
it really, I hate to say, I hate, it's time to take the country back and to actually make sure that the country is, you know, is standing for the values and the principles that made this country great. But, George, here's the problem in that um, it's not a perception that the FBI is is ideological. Correct. It's the reality. Correct. It's not a perception that grade, uh, grades K through 12 is uh, skewing people towards an anti-Americanism, and they're certainly not producing uh, outstanding academics. And it's not a perception what's going on with colleges, except to let you go pick out certain ones that you know are not politically oriented. So when people look at that, they go, yeah, I don't trust these kids coming out of college. I don't, I don't trust these schools to teach my kids. So how do you get trust when it's not warranted? Correct. I mean, all of that is correct. But I would add to that, by the way, not just uh, the FBI, not just the media, not just universities, big business. You know, people, you know, people, people have, as I go through in my book, I go through all these institutions, big business, the media, uh, universities, science and technology, all these institutions that, that, that used to be trusted 50 years ago, they had enjoyed very high levels of CDC. trust now. But exactly. All of these, all these the government, exactly, they, you know, the judiciary. Law enforcement, all of these institutions used to enjoy high levels of trust. Now they enjoy catastrophically low levels of trust. But the point I make exactly, Brian, is your one, which is not that somehow, you know, the American people have suddenly become suspicious for no reason. Yeah. They've become, you know, untrusting because, you know, I don't know, they're paranoid or something. Some is it's unfounded because, perhaps. but yes, not sir, th- Some of it. But, but the institutions themselves have become untrustworthy because they've done things that are basically, you know, they've lied to us. I mean, you know, I hate to say this, but, but you know, including but administrations of both parties have lied to us over things like war. Um, you know, we've got ourselves into, 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 these, into these terrible wars on the basis of, you know, falsehoods. Uh, that's, that's, been, that's catastrophic loss, loss of trust. Take the financial crisis as well, another example of when people lost trust. You know, the banking system, you know, for all its great strengths in the United States, got us into a terrible mess. Lots of people were – there was a deep recession that happened. Lots of people lost their jobs. Lots of people lost lost their homes, uh, you know, with these big mortgages they'd taken out. The banks were bailed out. The individuals were not bailed out. No wonder people don't trust the government, big business, the financial system, science, technology, the leaders of these institutions because they look after themselves. They mislead us. They yep. lie to us in many cases. And people have had enough. Uh, George Baker here. His book is now out, American Breakdown, Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions and How We Can Rebuild, rebuild Confidence. More with Gerard in just a moment. You'll listen to Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. China's been practically preparing for war with us for years. Yes, I view China as an enemy. How much more has to happen for Biden to realize you don't send cabinet members over to China to appease them? You start getting serious with China and say, we're not going to put up with it. They keep sending different cabinet officials over and it's embarrassing. That is uh, Nikki Haley saying that she's dead set against the, what we're doing uh, with China. Listen, there's uh, against China. Just admit we're, we're against China. They just hacked into some of our cabinet secretary's email, yet we're still sending four over there. Uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley is uh, pretty much surging on the right, but not getting that close to Donald Trump. Uh, with me right in studio is Gerard Baker, uh, author of a brand new book called American Breakdown. So, Gerard, what's your 
your reaction to her assessment, which would be her foreign policy, should she get the nomination? She's right. And, and, you know, that's what you've got to do. You've got to send those that very clear message to China, to a country like China. You know, it's like Japan in the 1930s or Germany in the 1930s. If they sense that there is a lack of resolve on the part of the United States or if they think, you know, the U.S. doesn't really want to, you know, doesn't really want to defend Taiwan, the American people are not really going to stand up and defend Taiwan. And, you know, we keep getting these sick signals that from cabinet ministers, cabinet members saying, you know, oh, we want to we want peace. We want an economic a deep economic relationship. You've got to be clear. You've got that doesn't mean you don't continue with diplomacy. Of course you do. And you do, you know. Peace through strength, right? That was Ronald Reagan's thing. You you actually, you know, you deal with the threat by firmly, firmly resisting it, firmly identifying it, first of all, and not kind of, play, you know, playing playing two sides in this way because they do understand, the Chinese will understand that that represents weakness. You, and I like, I like what Inuki Haley said. The, the, uh, let's look at the 2024 race. Do you believe we're going to see a replay? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, look, who we all get things wrong, Brian, don't we? I mean, everybody get, gets their political forecast wrong we're still four months out from the first primaries we're still you know 14 months out from the general but i can't you know you look at the polling uh, the polling i've written my column in the wall street journal today on this you know you, the polling is just overwhelmingly suggestive that on the republican side trump is untouchable and on the democratic side biden you know I, you know the, the, the issue continues to for biden continues to be one is he even going to be easy does he have the does he have the mental faculty and the physical capability to get there and i think there's some serious questions about that but the other problem for the democrats is who are the, you know the, the good the great thing for the republicans so the republicans got a great bench right donald trump isn't there you know you've got these other you may not like them all a lot of people you know ron DeSantis or nikki haley we've talked about or you know some of these other there's a strong field of candidates if the, the problem the democrats have is if biden is unable to do the job for some reason kamala harris I mean, are we really going to have? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of Joe Biden, as you know, or I can tell. But I'd much rather have Joe Biden than Kamala Harris. Wall Street Journal did a poll, and they asked people, uh, "Whose policies did you like better, Trump or Biden?" By a fifty-one to forty, Trump. The economy was, you know, that's people look, but it is going to be. I think the Trump's strongest argument is going to be that if he, if he puts it, if he can resist, you know, some of the other temptations that always uh, that always fall his way. Strongest argument is going to be: Are you better off today than you were four years ago? The famous Ronald Reagan question in 1980. And you know, I, one of the things I find amusing, Brad, is I keep reading all these pundits in the in the in the in the mainstream media saying. Well, you know, why aren't people? Why is why is Biden doing so badly? Why are people not giving him credit? You know, the economy, inflation's falling, unemployment's low, and inflation has just fallen in the last couple of months. But real wages have been declining for two and a half years. Um, you know, the economy has been, you know, has been. It is okay, it's growing. But if you look back where it was four years ago, it's nothing like as strong as it doubled the debt. Yeah, yeah. You know, by a huge amount. Of, look at interest rates. Look how much people are paying. Again, if they've got a fixed yeah. rate mortgage, they're okay. But if they're going to be taking out a new mortgage or refinancing, right. they're going to be paying far more. Of course people are unhappy. Gerard Baker, thanks so much. Pick up his book, American Breakdown, Why We Are No Longer Trust Our Leaders Institutions and How We Can Rebuild Confidence. Nikki Haley next. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, if you talk to anyone on the right or left, they would say the candidacy of Nikki Haley, well, she's surging. He's a 2024 GOP hopeful. We know we're a few months away from the Iowa caucus, and then up comes New Hampshire, South Carolina, and then we'll have a Super Tuesday before you know it, and this is an important time. No longer can people say, well, wait till Labor Day, then it gets serious. Well, it's after Labor Day, 
and Nikki Haley's always been serious. She was the first major candidate in. Uh, Ambassador, welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be with you. So uh, 9-11's here, and we see the First Lady, and we see the Secretary of Defense. We don't see the President. He's going to be in Alaska at 4 p.m. today, Eastern Time. And one of the comments from his traveling uh, his traveling committee was, well, you know, 22 years after Pearl Harbor, we weren't still celebrating. We still weren't marking it like we're doing now with 9-11. Do you think it's time for us to stop marking it? You know, it's not only that, Brian. I mean, I, you know, every American that remembers that day gets that pit in their stomach. I mean, I was watching this morning and that pain never goes away. I had just come home Um, with my son. I had been home maybe a day, and I remember lying in bed with him as my husband, Michael, took our little one to preschool and looking on the TV and watching that play out, thinking, what world did I just bring him into? And the pain that followed. But more importantly, it was such a reminder that true evil really does exist in this world, and we're never immune from it. And it also reminded us about the greatness of the American spirit and our resilience. That's why Biden and Kamala need to be out there, out front. That's why they need to be reminding every high schooler and every college student to watch 30 minutes of what that day was like and understand that we can never be so flippant and we can never be so absent to think that that can't happen again. So his decision was to spend another day in Vietnam and put it on the tail end of the G20. So the G20 did deconflict from 9-11, but he thought the Vietnam relationship was more important. Was he right? No, I think the American spirit always needs to take priority, period. I mean, I think you're looking at you're in Vietnam. That's not a democracy. You need to be in America. That is a democracy. You need to acknowledge something that happened that was horrific, not just for as a reminder to Americans, but as a tribute to those American families who lost loved ones. So as a tribute to the heroes that went and risked their lives and lost their lives in the days following because of the after effects of it. That's why you're there. That's what an American president does is just remind people about the spirit, the resilience, what it means. I mean, I, you know, I don't get it. I don't get a lot of what he and Kamala do, but what I do get is there's never been a day where we need more of a reminder of what's happening in the world and who we are and what we need to believe in and the fact that division is not where we need to be, but unity and the American spirit is where we need to be. So people tell you, well, if you're in diplomacy, you don't want to go directly at something. Your actions really tell your intent. So that's really what the spirit I think that President Biden was giving with Hanoi, Vietnam. She decided, he decided to upgrade their relationship because of their natural resources, and they seem to view China as a threat. He's up our relationship with Japan and Korea, South Korea, and their relationship with each other. He's done the same thing with Australia, who see a huge threat on a daily basis. Nobody has to explain to India there's still border skirmishes, especially to you with your heritage. And now you have a situation where India and Saudi Arabia have set up a corridor to try to counter the Belt and Road program. So the actions show that President Biden and his administration know that China is on the move in the march and they see us as an enemy. But we get this. Cut 20. Really what this trip was about, it was less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away. Everybody knows what it's all about. We're not looking to hurt China. Uh, sincerely. Your thoughts? 
okay, he's not looking to hurt China, but China's looking to hurt us. They've been preparing for war with us for years. And the amazing part is he sent four cabinet members there, Brian, already. Four cabinet members after a Chinese spy balloon flew over our country. Four cabinet members after we it came out that a Chinese spy base was being developed on Cuba. Four cabinet members after one of those cabinet members was hacked. Four cabinet members after seeing the intrusion into our country that they bought up 400,000 acres of U.S. soil near our military bases. The fact that they bought the largest exporter, of the largest pork producer in the country here in America. The fact that they steal $600 billion worth of intellectual property. The fact that they've killed more Americans from fentanyl than the Iraq, Afghanistan, and Vietnam wars combined. The fact that they are building up their military. It's unthinkable to me that he continues to want to appease an enemy that has so openly tried to show that they are at war with us. And that's the problem, because when you start to be that weak in the knees on a country like China, who's so involved in actually being on the ground in our country now and causing problems, then what message are you sending to Iran that says death to America? What message are you sending to Russia that continues to hold hands with China? What message are you sending to North Korea? Because now what you're seeing is you're seeing a unification of China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And what are they unifying about? They're unifying over their hatred over America. So we have a San Francisco summit coming up that we really want China to go to. They say, well, you better invite the leader of Hong Kong. We don't want to do that. This guy, John Lee, he had a huge hand in crushing Hong Kong at the behest of Beijing. Uh, they also say we have to show more sincerity if we want to show, uh, want them to show up to the APEC summit. What's your reaction to this stance? You don't beg China for anything. You let China know what we expect of them. It's their choice to make. What we need to be doing is being strong. We should go back and and say no more buying U.S. soil, and we're going to take back the land you've already purchased. We should go and say you're not going to put any more money in our universities and tell our universities they either take Chinese money or American money. We should go and say that we're going to create a blacklist of all technology that China shouldn't have because they build up their military. We should tell China we're going to end all normal trade relations with them until they stop killing Americans with fentanyl. And we should start strengthening our military. Forget if they show up at a summit. Let's start letting them know that we're on to them. Let's start letting them know that we're going to lead, not react to them. And you know, every time that he reacts and every time that he does things like this, China and Russia get closer. And it just just defies logic. I mean, I dealt literally, Brian, dealt with China and Russia every day for two years, every day. And Russia would always just create chaos. That's what they did. Every day they'd create chaos and lie. And China always trying to fi- tried to find ways to be more aggressive, and they would literally just condemn everyone that wasn't them. They right. they acted like they were the best country in the world, and they constantly were trying to make us feel bad. And the thing is, I always made sure that they knew that we were strong, we were proud, and if they wanted to be working with us, then they had to come to us. We were never going to go to them. And so, that's the difference between me and what Biden's doing right now. Well, foreign policy, China is connected to Russia, is connected to the war in Ukraine. I know you see that. I see that. The Republican Party necessarily is getting impatient, the ones that aren't supportive of it, on the pacing of which we're supplying Ukraine, giving them enough to survive, not win. 
But I do want to talk about domestically. You were one of the first to say you're not electing, reelecting Joe Biden. You're electing Kamala Harris. And one of the key things that that Democrats had in 2022, and I think you'll agree with this, was messaging as it came with Roe v. Wade. It gets overturned, and it became Republicans want to take over women's health care. They had no message. Listen to Kamala Harris when asked, what week is the week when it comes to abortion? Cut 12. I mean, what week of pregnancy should abortion access be cut off? We need to put back in place the protections of Roe versus Wade. You- we need to put back the protections that are in Roe v. Wade into law. We need to restore the protections of Roe versus Wade. Do you need to be more precise? I am being precise. We need to put into law the protections of Roe versus Wade. And she would not agree to any week. What's your message if that's the debate you're having with her? That means she's for abortion anytime, anywhere, for any reason. I mean, that's what she doesn't want to say. That's why I've said constantly, we need to ask her and Joe Biden, are you for 38 weeks? Are you for 39 weeks? Are you for 40 weeks? Because they will tell you they're the ones that push that law into Congress trying to get that passed. They are for abortion anytime, anywhere, or for any reason. What we know is we need to make sure that we are always focused on saving as many babies as we can and supporting as many moms as we can. And whatever it takes to do that, we should be willing to come together and make that happen. Because I think the majority of Americans do want to ban late-term abortions. I think they do want to encourage adoptions. I think they do want to make sure that doctors and nurses who don't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform them. I think they do think that contraception should be accessible. And I think all Americans can agree that any woman that gets an abortion should not have to go to jail or get the death penalty. That's where we should come together. Are you for Lindsey Graham's 15 weeks? I'm for anything that will save babies and support as many moms. If we can get 60 Senate votes, and that's the key, Brian, is they have demonized this issue for years, and I refuse to be a part of it. What we need to remember is in order to pass any federal law, it takes 60 Senate votes and a majority of the House and a signature of a president. We haven't had 60 pro-life senators or 60 Republican senators in over 100 years. So we might have 45 pro-life senators. So the reality is a Republican president can't ban abortions any more than a Democrat president can ban these state laws. So we have to come together on where those 60 Senate votes are. If 60 Senate votes falls at 15 weeks, absolutely I'll sign it. But let's talk about what it takes to get to 60 votes, because without that, you're not saving more babies. You're not supporting more moms. Why do you think she doesn't answer the question? Because she knows that she's for 38, 39, and 40 weeks. She knows that Roe v. Wade being overturned, that's what she's talking about is abortion anytime for any reason. And the thing is, she doesn't want it turned back on her. Like they loved it. The problem with the fellas on the stage is they would not acknowledge the issue, Brian. We need to lean into this. Our ways are the right ways. The difference is how you talk about it. You know, I'm not going to condemn anyone for being pro-choice any more than I want them to condemn me for being pro-life. So let's talk about it and deal with it in the humanizing way that it is. This is personal for every woman and man, and we have to treat it like that. And they want to go demonize men and women who don't think like them. And that's not leadership. So at the border, obviously the biggest failure of this administration and in my lifetime, uh, it's infecting every major city. If they said it. The mayor of New York City said that New York will change forever unless we find a way to stop the 60 or the 3,000 a week and the 66,000 that are here right now. 
but they got what they wanted. Uh, they got what they wanted because sanctuary city is here, and a right and a right to shelter is mandatory in this city. So here's Kamala Harris, who was in charge of the border. Cut thirty-eight. Thirty-five. When the border crossings went down earlier in the summer, the administration said it was due to your policies working. Now they're going back up as they did in the month of August. Does that show the strategy is no longer working? Absolutely not. What it means is that we have to stay focused on a number of issues related to the irregular migration that, again, we're seeing around the world and America is not immune. You you think the strategy is working despite the numbers being up? Overall, we are seeing progress, but there is, it, we're not going to have a constant. There are going to be fluctuations. That is normal, just like the weather fluctuates and, and circumstances fluctuate. You happy with that answer? Ladies and gentlemen, that is who we are running against for president. That is who will be your president if you vote for Joe Biden. And that's what everybody needs to remember. That is your borders are. That's the person that was given the responsibility to fix the border, and that is her answer. We will be in a world of hurt if Kamala Harris becomes president. That's why I'm fighting so hard, Brian. That's why it matters. And I'll say this about the border, because I think it's really important. I don't think that Greg Abbott gets enough credit for what he has done. Because, first of all, when all of this was happening in Texas, and I went 400 miles down that border, when I talked to the ranchers, when I talked to the sheriffs, when I talked to the border security there, they were so underwater, but they were just taking it. They were taking it because they always had to take it. No one was helping them. And and Greg Abbott had the courage to say, you know what, I'm not doing this to my people anymore. And he started sending it to these sanctuary cities around the country who were lecturing Republicans saying that we were bad people because we didn't want to let illegal immigrants in. And all of a sudden, what happened? Are they bad people now? Are they bad people because they see it infiltrating their schools and their hospitals and taxpayers having to pay for it? No, nobody's, none of us are bad for saying that we want law and order. None of us are bad for saying that we need to make sure that Americans are secure and that national security is a top priority. And now all of these Democrat-run sanctuary cities are suddenly saying, oh, wait a minute, don't do this to us. Well, you know what? If you're a sanctuary city, they're going to keep coming, and I think Greg Abbott needs to keep sending them because that's the only way they're going to wake up. And, Ambassador, we know that there's a lot of turning up there on the FBI most wanted list. So this is uh, this is not a good mix of what's happening at the border. Something's going to come to a head. I, I hard, hard to imagine this not being the top issue, uh, barring any sudden change of events come Election Day. Ambassador, what and is And remember, your- too, that Iran says that the easiest way to come into America is through the southern border. Uh, we'll see. What's your right? What has changed since the debate for your campaign? I mean, we've seen an incredible amount of support, and I'm I'm extremely grateful. You know, I think people see that we need a new generational conservative leader. I think they need someone who's going to tell hard truths and let the chips fall where they may. I think we need someone who's been an executive and also negotiated across the table from Russia, China, and dealt with Iran and North Korea. And I think they're ready to leave the past and move forward. We've got big problems. We need new solutions. And so we're Mm. incredibly grateful for the support that we've had, but we're going to keep our head down. We're going to keep working hard. This is about earning the support 
of right. every single American, and we're not going to stop until we get America back strong and proud And she'll again. keep up with the plaid shirt in Iowa and in New Hampshire, and then she'll meet you in South Carolina. Nikki Haley, thanks so much. Go to NikkiHaley.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Nobody in the history of America has ever voted for a presidential candidate because of a vice presidential candidate. It doesn't happen. This time, it's different because both are term limited out. And in the case of Joe Biden, Joe Biden is not only is he term limited out, but not many people think if he wins that he's going four years. And then you got the next person. Most people agree with this. Maybe not everybody. But Bush 41, example, Al Gore. Nobody was challenging. Dick Cheney didn't want the job. But nobody was challenging. The vice president's the next one up. And you'll get challenged by Pat Buchanan, maybe Bob Dole. But for the most part, you have the machine behind you. And for the last two years, you kind of get it going. You got all these people that used to work for the president. Hey, how do you want to be with me? I'm looking to run for president again. So this time with the 77 and 80-year-old, I believe a vice president is going to mean a heck of a lot. And that is why Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis especially are coming out. To, and Tim Scott told me on, on Saturday night, he's like, this is all about Kamala Harris. She's, that, that's who you're voting for, Kamala Harris. And that's the one with, with the lower approval rating than Joe Biden. You know, usually, you know, you don't like, you don't mind not like Barack Obama, but no one thought he was incompetent. She's incapable. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, we come to you from Midtown Manhattan. We're downtown right now. The reading of the names continues of all those who lost their lives on 9-11 and subsequently to that. It's amazing to think 22 years later that we see some grandchildren reading out the names. Obviously never had a chance uh, to meet uh, to meet their uh, grandparent now. It's amazing knowing that uh, Ben was on the air when this happened and it's been 22 years since. And then you see these families grow up and sadly... They're still dying of cancer or, or suffering with it. Michael Goodwin standing by. Uh, so before we get to Michael at the New York Post, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Really what this trip was about, it was less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. We're not looking to hurt China. Uh, sincerely, we're all better off if China does well. Really? I'd like to hurt China uh, because they're looking to destroy us. I don't know if that occurred to the president. U.S. versus China. That's what the president's trip was about in the G20. A corridor alliance, India and Saudi Arabia. Now upgrading relations with Vietnam. It is all about China. Just admit it. Number two. I mean, what week of pregnancy should abortion access be cut off? We need to put back in place the protections of Roe versus Wade. You need to put back the protections that are in Roe v. Wade. Do you need to be more precise? I am being precise. 2024, Trump leads everywhere, but not often anywhere, unlike his last two campaigns. The former president has been methodical about his appearances, interviews, and rallies. Why? Meanwhile, President Biden is so weak, his entire party seems worried uh, that his VP is causing even more concern. You just heard some of it. We look at the front runners and contenders. 
number one. We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's speculated that the plane is as big as a 737. It was oh, most yeah. disturbing, Edie, I think, is the time of morning is when people pour fall. into that building. Yeah, and that was me 22 years ago on the set of Fox and Friends. We won't forget the lives lost 2,977, 2,753 in New York alone. Many are still dying of 9-11-related diseases. 43 firefighters' names added to the memorial wall. They're all cancer-related, and they say there's 271,000 living with 9-11-related cancers because of the air that that was too toxic to breathe, although no one told us that. Michael Goodwin, where were you in 9-11? Uh, good morning, Brian. Um, I was uh, uh, I was an editor at the Daily News, executive editor, and I was preparing to go in um, when I saw the – when I heard ab- about the first crash. And then one of my colleagues called me and with suspicions about it, and I, you know, I was sort of catching up to it, and, and then the second plane hit. And so then we were all absolutely certain. So I, I don't live in Manhattan, but I managed to get into Manhattan uh, to get to work. And uh, I, I will tell you another sideline, uh, Brian. It, it's my birthday. 9-11 is my birthday. Wow. Um, and so I tell people, and I still, and I mean it, that uh, because I can't celebrate it, I don't have to count it. So... <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Yeah, uh, yeah it's just uh, it's amazing downtown. Yeah, the former officials and you have the reading of the names and they, we still do a good job. I remember yeah. the evolution. Remember the big thing was we have to clean it up. Okay, got sure. it. Then we had to uh, memorialize it, get the footprints out there so people had where to go. Got it. Then we had to come up with the design. Then we had to find a way to pay for it. Then the design's got to get okayed. When are they going to start building? Then they start building. Uh, and then we had the pandemic that said everyone just stay home. Now the building's been done, been finished. It's a matter of filling that place up, which has not been done yet, and finishing out the pathways that were all destroyed, which has been completed. And now we're looking at a situation where the president of the United States doesn't even show up. He's going to go to Alaska at four. And one of the communiques from his traveling party was, look, by 22 years later, we weren't still memorializing Pearl Harbor. Do you think the the, the analogy is apt? Um if you want to make it strictly a military event, uh, I guess you could. But this happened to civilians, and this happened in a city, in, in, the, in really the, the capital of the United States, not the official government capital, but the capital city of the United States. And as you point out, people are still dying. I went to a funeral recently of, uh, of a woman who was uh, Carol Robles Roman. Some of your listeners may know her. Was uh, uh, eventually, a, but she was working in the court system then. She was downtown afterwards for months and months and months. She then worked at the Bloomberg City Hall, which you know he took office in January of 22. So there are a lot of people who are still suffering from this, and I think the president has missed the mark here, uh, as he misses so many marks. Uh, he just, he, you know, as someone said the other day, man, read the room, man. I mean, that's not how America feels about 9-11, that it's over. 
we don't feel it's over. We feel it, it, it it's and it's it's more it's a memory, but it's more than a memory too. So it, it really does, I think, in many ways, guide our military. Still, it, it many people who went into the service uh, because of that day. Uh, so it, it, there's so many so many uh, tangents and so many uh, remaining connections to 9/11 that I think that to brush it off by saying, uh, as the White House, as you reported there. Uh, it's wrong. That's just wrong. So let's talk about what's happening in the city because it's a national story. Uh, over between 60 and 100,000 illegal immigrants here. We have nowhere to put them. We now have um, a situation where the mayor is looking into finding a way to get out from underneath this uh, right to shelter, which came across in the 80s, I believe. And yeah. now the sanctuary city status, which says if you come, you're going to deconflict with ICE. The cops can't work with ICE to get you out. So here's Eric Adams with the cost. It cost about $14 billion over the last three years, and we're getting 3000 a week minimum. Listen to what he said over the weekend, Cut 37. The simple truth is that longtime New Yorkers and asylum seekers will feel these potential cuts, and they will hurt. New Yorkers are angry and frustrated, and they're right to be. I am too. I want to be clear. These tough decisions are a direct result of inactions in Washington and in Albany. In Albany and in action. So he's saying it's not my fault. So in action. But he was greeting them at the bus when they were being dropped off from Texas. Big hearts, but not big wallets. He told every agency to cut 5%, told cops and firefighters, level off the overtime. So we're, we're, how does this end, Michael Goodwin? Well, uh the first, the first uh, answer to that, Brian, is that we don't know because the, the border is still open. So, be, you know, the, I've, I've likened this to trying to bail out uh, an overflowing bathtub without turning off the faucet. Uh, you can't keep up. I mean, he's already, the mayor's estimating $12 billion of city and state money over three years. And you look at some of the, the the hotels they've taken over, the sheer number of people there are, as you say, over 100,000 migrants in the city, roughly 110,000, and 60,000 of them are living totally, completely at taxpayer expense. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense. It can't go on. Adams was wrong to tout the city sanctuary status. Uh, he believed Uh, demanded that the state help. But it's curious, one of his demands for the state is that they take all of these migrants and spread them around the state, you know, force four suburban towns to take them, even though they don't want to. Now, that's the very thing that he uh, called Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, a racist over. <laughs> Adam, a- Abbott was sending them to, to blue cities to make the point that the border states need help. Now, here, and Adams denounced him for that and still does. And yet Adams is doing the very same thing to the suburbs. Well, so Governor Hochul says no to that. But she and Adams agree on one, what I think is a very dumb idea, Brian. It is to expedite work permits and to try to find permanent housing for these migrants. If, If anything, that would be 
a great invitation for others to come here. Wow, I can go to New York. No, I do. I get a free room. I get a job and maybe permanent housing. Let's all go to New York. I mean, that would be the result of giving an extra layer of benefits because the free room is one of the things that's attracting so many of them. No question. Uh, so we'll see how this tend, uh, this out ends up because the, on a smaller basis, Massachusetts and Chicago and Philadelphia are dealing with the same thing. So is Los Angeles and San Francisco. And I'm just wondering, when you talk about and write about bringing a city back, things have to get horrible before they get better. Are they horrible enough? Well, that's... That's a good question. I mean, you hear that. That's really the the question of of every uh, challenger to an incumbent uh, government official, right? Are things bad enough that you're willing to make the change? And I think that things are bad enough. And I and I have been very critical of Mayor Adams on his handling of this, but I think he's finally got it right. Even in the clip you played. He's beginning to find his voice about the White House, about sealing the border. He's not all the way there yet, but he's come a long way. Can you imagine? Don't you think, Michael, that's why uh, Biden's not here? Oh, listen, this is a major problem for the White House. Uh, and you're probably right about, about why Biden wouldn't want to come to 9-11, though I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't underestimate their callousness about uh, 9-11 itself. But I, I, I do think that all these other – I mean, if you're in, in Boston, in Massachusetts, uh, in Chicago, who are you going to blame? I mean, you can't you can't say, oh, the Republicans need to work with immigration. How come this never happened before? Why did this this invasion of six and a half million people? Why is it only happening now for the first time in American history? It's because of Joe Biden. It's because of his policies. It's because of the invitation he sent when he scuttled the Remain in Mexico deal. You talk to any of the migrants. I mean, all the interviews, they all said, well, Joe Biden said to come. Right. I mean, that's what they heard. And that's what the cartels spread. I mean, Brian, thousands of people have died on the way. Uh, You know, uh, the children who are no no doubt being trafficked, the drugs, et cetera. Is this humane? Is this really compassionate? So I I want you to outrageous scandal of historic proportions. Margaret Brennan brought that up to Kamala Harris on Face the Nation. She was, again, totally unprepared for a cut 30. Uh, five. When the border crossings went down earlier in the summer, the administration said it was due to your policies working. Now they're going back up as they did in the month of August. Does that show the strategy is no longer working? Absolutely not. What it means is that we have to stay focused on a number of issues related to the irregular migration that, again, we're seeing around the world and America is not immune. Do you think the strategy is working despite the numbers being up? Overall, we are seeing progress. But there is, it, we're not going to have a constant. There are going to be fluctuations. That is normal, just like the weather fluctuates and, and circumstances fluctuate. So you, you happy with that answer? <laughs> you, you know, the... Either she's not prepared or she doesn't take preparation well. But that's not the answer. It's not like the weather. I mean, there are there have been these laws 
when when laws were changed. I mean, Donald Trump made a difference. I mean, the remain in Mexico and then the pushing down. I mean, you had the you had Guatemala and the and the country south of Mexico engaged in this. Perhaps we sent them a truckload of money to to stiffen them, but nonetheless, you you have to stop the flow. You cannot bring them into the country. I mean, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor, has a very interesting op-ed in the Times when he says, what kind of system is it where you flood your own country with people you know you can't process for years, but you don't let them work, and you don't A, B, and C. I know, but he uh, wants to let them work. That's when he lost yeah, he wants to, but he also wants them to seal the border. And uh, right. look, Brian, I think we, if once we seal the border, we can have a conversation about everything Absolutely. else. Absolutely. But you've got to start with sealing the border. We can't the border. get them to seal the border. It's nuts. Uh, That's right. Michael Goodwin, uh, fascinating time. New York uh, the, is the center of things again. It's a national story, and it's worse here between crime and illegal immigration. Uh, that's why people are focused on what's happening. Michael, thank you. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you. All right, uh, your turn. You want to talk about 9-11? Is your kid learning anything in school? I want to hear from you. one 408 Also, uh, the President Trump has been quiet of late. He's not been doing much. I mean, we're probably going to get him on this show in the next few weeks. But he's not doing a lot of big rallies, going to Iowa, Iowa State, and then he goes back. Is this a smart move? I think it is. And I think a lot has to do with the court cases where he's got to watch himself. Um, and I think it shows the discipline's necessary to win. What do you think? one 408 Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Yep, 22 years ago, George W. Bush. Uh, and a members-only jacket uh, shows up, just grabbed the bullhorn extemporaneously, and spoke from the heart in front of a firefighter. So little did they know as they dug through the pile, they're being exposed to these cancerous toxins, as you saw. I mean, I was down there in 9-11. You, it looked like it was uh, the moon because everything was white. There were papers everywhere, but there was this film of white dust. And a lot of people said that was asbestos, the pulver, uh, pulverized uh, sheetrock. Uh, you shouldn't have been breathing it in and unfortunately weren't quick enough to, to realize that. Alex in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Alex. Hey, good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking the call. I was actually in a car seat at that time. I was a little baby, so I can't really remember the details. Did, what did but, you hear from your family? Uh, I heard they were scared. I mean, we were here in Brooklyn like a, like a mile and a half away, and we they, they were able to see Debris falling, you know, a mile and a half away from there, and it was very scary. The first reports, you know, were very unclear. People thought it was a terrorist uh, thing uh, that was going to be way more than just hitting the buildings. They they didn't know if there were going to be a going to be a bomb exploding right around the corner from them or, or such things. It was terrifying for anybody, I think, living in, in New York City. But it was certainly way worse for these yeah. people. You know, hundreds of people have died. It's a very sad situation. On, on um, a lesser note, I'll, let's talk about twenty uh, twenty four. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, I told you a couple of months ago, I don't think Joe Biden's going to be the nominee, and I think I'm turning out to be right because 
the handlers are, are learning the risk is just not worth it. He can't make it in the general election. But some people are talking about Kamala Harris taking up his place and being the nominee. Uh, she's going to run. But they're also going to let Gavin Newsom and Cory Booker run in this primary once they push Joe Biden out, because what's going on now is they're telling Gavin Newsom and Cory Booker, stay out of the race or we'll smirge you in the media because we want Joe Biden to be the nominee. But the handlers want Joe to be the nominee because he's controllable. Kamala Harris is not controllable because she thinks she knows best. She thinks she knows she's smart. She wings the speeches. She flops it up and she does it again. Instead, you know, she's dumber than Joe Biden because Joe Biden will read the teleprompter most of the time because he knows he's a dumb old man that can't read. I mean, I can't wing it. But Kamala Harris, instead of just doing the easiest job of being vice president, just reading the teleprompter, she'll wing it again and again. So uh, the handlers Uh, know she's not. Yeah, I just don't think she's competent. I really don't. And she doesn't put the work in. I, I, I think they are. They're stuck. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. It's getting harder and harder to use the metrics we once used as we were all coming of age to decide whether or not a candidate is vulnerable or whether a candidate's going to be able to win. Donald Trump never hit 50% job approval rating as president of the United States. He came within 42,000 votes of winning the Electoral College. In the last midterm 40-year high inflation and a president who's deeply underwater and Democrats came within 6,000 votes of holding the House. So what I see is sort of what Cornell sees, too. We have a tied race, and this is going to be a tied race no matter who the nominee is, and it's going to be four states and a handful of votes. So let's bring in Congressman Jason Chaffetz, those reality of uh, of politics, Republican, Democrat, and the divided times in which we're in, Uh, Fox News contributor, best-selling author, so, Jason, welcome back. Your thoughts about Amy Walter's analysis? Uh, there's a lot of truth to that, Brian. Um, well, the dynamic that I think has changed is how we vote. You know, it used to be the people that were really paying attention and wanted to participate had to get up, get out, get in line, go through the snow or the rain or the whatever's going on in their lives and actually vote. Now, vote by mail. A um, lot of suspicion about what's happening, who's voting and how they're voting and what sort of information do they have when they vote. And we often start voting before we even have, um, you know, the debates. I mean, look at the Pennsylvania Senate race. Um, I think that dynamic has really changed a lot. I don't like it. I wish we would all vote same day, same time, same information with an identification. But uh, the way we've changed, um, it allows the Democrats are far better than this that re, than Republicans are. I mean, it's it's not even close when you look at that race. Well, why is Nikki Haley up six points compared to the other candidates? Do you think it's all of that debate or is there something about her, her strengths that, that work well for Republicans against Joe Biden's weakness? Um, I think the frank admissions about the reality of some voters related to abortion, um, I don't necessarily agree with her, but I'm just saying that chord is something that, that the Democrats are really going to be harping on. If they have one issue that they think they can divide people, sh- show a degree of separation, it's the abortion issue. And, and her articulation of that in the last debate, I think, won her a lot of, lot of suburban women voters. So a district court came out and ruled that Joe Biden and his administration did manipulate social media and did harm the First Amendment. 
And and that is a significant victory. They thought it would have to go to the Supreme Court. I think it got to the fifth. Here's what Congressman Jim Jordan said about that cut 18. God bless the judge in the Western District of Louisiana, the court there, that said the Biden administration was the pressure and coercion that they were putting on big tech was an attack on First Amendment free speech rights. And he went through 80-some pages of facts how these various agencies in the Biden administration were attacking our First Amendment liberties. So you are exactly right. It is a fundamental assault on the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the things we cherish, the things that make us the greatest country ever. And that's what's at stake here. And that, and, and they, then, then it's all targeted to President Trump because they know he will defend what we're all describing there, all those rights and liberties we enjoy under our constitutional system. So, I mean, if you want to talk about manipulating an election, forget about hiding ballots and uh, trucks that mis- mysteriously appeared right. or didn't disappear. We, no one can prove any of that. I don't care how sure you think or your gut tells you. But if you just look at the manipulation of the message, the squelching uh, by social media – uh, of what was going on in our country and the the shadow banning that took place of people like Don Jr. or or different sound bites that would would affect not only the pandemic but of course who you voted for. That, I mean that's the issue to pursue. Yeah, no, absolutely. They they uh, Jim Jordan, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan is absolutely right. I totally agree with what you said. And the I mean, Zuckerbucks. They, I mean, they were taking down things like the New York Post. And, and I could tell you, as one who's got, uh, you know, 500,000 different people on Twitter, um, I'd put out a political post on something like that. It'd go to like, you know, I'm not kidding you, like 200 people out of 500,000. So, yeah, they were suppressing it. The court recognizes that it needs to be fixed. Look, these social media companies, Congress granted them some uh, immunity from liability uh, regarding what is posted. So, they were doing it to manipulate. If you look into the depths of what the federal government was doing with table topping, you know, role playing, what this was going to be like when the Hunter Biden information came out. Yep. Um, I, I mean, it was it was insidious what they did. And I'm glad the courts recognize it. I hope it fixes it. But, um, you know, putting the public pressure when you're the regulator. Uh, and the law, and you come into this private company and tell them what to do and how to do it, they're going to listen. So just uh, to give an idea of what's going on for the 2024, 51% of the American people, get this, when asked, whose policies did you like better, Trump or Biden? Policies, 51 to 40, according to the Wall Street Journal, they like Trump. And if people want to know why Trump is hanging around and leading, it's because more and more people have been forced to examine his record. And they're saying even with the rather eccentric behavior, uh, which a lot of it was because of the ridiculous Russia attacks, they still like his policies better. Yeah, life was better in America. I mean, look at the price of energy, the price of gas. You go out and get a gallon of gas now, you're, you know, you're, you're approaching $4.50 a gallon. And, and it didn't used to be that way. Inflation, immigration, foreign policy. I mean, and we have a commander in chief who can't articulate a few sentences. He's overseas, not at nine, you know, honoring the 9-11 victims, um, you know, from doing it from afar, uh, albeit that he's doing an event in Alaska. But he's out there and he's embarrassing. He literally tells the world, hey, I'm done with this press conference. I got to go to sleep. I mean, that's yeah, not, I mean, can you it's hardly this? strength. 
And how about this? They tell me I have to call on these people. He can't even pronounce their names. And then he calls on five people who ask the same question. They ask a second fold to the question. He never answers. How do you feel about North Korea going to visit, leader going to visit Vladimir Putin? And the other one was, you know, do you worry about the mixed messages you're giving uh, China? Uh, whatever. He doesn't answer any follow-up questions, and he just gets away with it. You don't see anybody even saying, well, excuse me, what about the second half of my question? You don't even get that. Can you imagine traveling halfway around the world following this president around, and you can't even get a question off? He hasn't given an interview since July. But uh, Gavin Newsom sat down with Chuck Todd to dispel anything that he's running for office. But it makes it clear he will be a surrogate because because I don't think Biden can even campaign. But someone has to listen to this question about does he fear Trump will win? Cut 14. I think another four years of Donald Trump will break us. Uh, I, I don't I, I hope we don't have to experience that. Um, but I worry about democracy. I worry about the fetishness for autocracy that we're seeing, not just from Trump, uh, but around the world and notably across this country. Uh, I've made the point about DeSantis that I think he's functionally authoritarian. Uh, I'm worried more in many respects about Trumpism, what transcends well beyond uh, his term and time and tenure. By the way, Chuck Todd says, I just tried to get to the bottom of things. He's unbiased. How about this question? Do you think another four years of Donald Trump will break us? As opposed, do you think he asked the question, do you think another four years of Joe Biden will break us? I mean, is he crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Look, Thank God I, he's I, gone. I, I don't I don't expect anything anything more from him. But for Gavin Newsom to suggest that he is not wanting and desiring and, and trying to become the next president of the United States is silly. It's laughable. It's like you don't want to go out there too fast, right? Everybody's hesitant. Everybody sees the vulnerability of Joe Biden, but I think they're afraid to go out first because they'll get excoriated. They've got to say, hey, no, we're going to do this on Joe's timetable. I have said for a long time, I don't think he'll can he'll be on the ballot as a candidate for president by the end of the year. Now, maybe my timeline's off, but Democrats have been scared to death. They're tied. Joe Biden and Donald Trump, they think they think Donald Trump is the worst person in the history of the world. And their guy is tied. If Bidenomics is working and they're getting everything done that they say they're getting done and they're tied with who they think is the worst person who's ever walked on the planet, that's got to scare them to death. Why aren't they winning by 15 points if everything's so good? So the right now, uh, more to your uh, the your expertise, we'll get a few things happening. Number one, James Comer says and Jim Jordan says he thinks they're going to have an impeachment inquiry. Democrats relish it. They think they can build off and make Joe Biden a sympathetic figure. We know that Trump really wasn't hurt by his impeachment, which is I know it's and either was Bill Clinton. So do you worry about that? And number two, do you think there's a lot of moderate votes in Republicans who feel if they vote for this, they are saying goodbye to their seat? So what would you do if you were Kevin McCarthy? You got to pursue the truth. Um, all, all they seek is the same access to documents that the Democrats had when Donald Trump was president, you know, and when the same access to documents that they, you know, Democrats got when Joe Biden was president. Why isn't that the same standard? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me here. They're going to have duly issued subpoenas. Why isn't the Biden administration conforming to that? And I think what the House has got to do is convinced it's it's uh, members who are in districts that aren't quite as Republican as maybe Utah's third congressional district as to be able to say, look, we're just trying to pursue the documents. We're not actually impeaching the president. We need access to those documents. 
and a, a impeachment inquiry gives us that legal authority and gives us well, the, for, a better case in, in court. So, Jason, educate me. Right now, it's been about a year, and the National Archives has not given up the 5,400 interactives between the pseudonames of Joe Biden and his son and others. Right. What's going to change if it's an impeachment inquiry? Um, you're going to have a duly issued subpoena that you can go to court to get a court to enforce it. Trey Gowdy used to always say, you know, your your ability to issue a subpoena is only as strong as your ability to enforce it. Unfortunately, Congress is pretty wimpish. And what they do is they rely on the Department of Justice to enforce their subpoenas. I did it all the time. I issued many subpoenas that never got enforced. Um, because the Department of Justice, and until Congress go, grows a backbone and maybe decides, hey, we're going to get the courts involved um, and push this, then, you know, hey, we're just going to live in a land where there's there's only one system of justice, depending on your party affiliation. But, but can, you, can you get the court without the impeachment inquiry? Um, it won't be as strong. Okay. It, 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 it won't be as strong. You can, you can have a case that the committee had the authority to do that, but... I think what the speaker and the legal eagles are trying to do is to say, if you have a full vote of the House to access these documents, that's a stronger case than the Oversight Committee and James Comer. Do you think there should be a government shutdown? Now, one thing I heard is they're going to do things on regular order. Okay, 12 appropriations bills. They did it in the Senate. I haven't seen them, but they did it. So at least it's at least you can start debating. And in the House, they've only done one. What's stopping them from sitting in a committee and hammering out deals? I, I I don't understand this. I've never understood it since the 1972 Budget Act. Only one time have we gone through so-called regular order. It was the one time that the balance, uh, the budget actually balanced. Uh, Newt Gingrich was the speaker and Bill Clinton was the president. Um, nobody seeks a shutdown. I don't want to shut down. But we haven't. Congress just got what off a six-week break. They could have been there actually doing their work, going through bill by bill. But traditionally, both sides of the aisle, um, equal problem. They don't want to take tough votes, and that's why they don't do it. And so it always ends up with a continuing resolution or an omnibus or a short-term CR. I mean, how many times have we been to that movie? Yeah, I just don't think you got – there's a lot of Republicans that are not going to go for it, and they're not going to go for impeachment unless they get the inquiry. And there's a lot of moderates, for example, in New York that say, yeah, I'm not you – know, don't expect me to vote for the impeachment. I'll lose my seat. I'm only going to win by 100 votes if I do win anyway. So it's going to be an interesting time in the House. I don't think anyone benefits from a shutdown. I'd love something not to be embarrassing for once that comes out of Congress. That's, you're exactly right. This is why being Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, is the most impossible job uh, in the month of September. I, I don't know how he runs that gambit and, and finds peace when you only have votes, you know, a five-seat margin. I, I don't know how he gets from here to there. All right. Uh, check out his podcast, Jason in the House. Jason Chafe, it's always great. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Brian. one 866 we come back, we talk about 9-11. Relive some of the moments 22 years later and also take your calls. You can also write me at briankillme.com. And then at the end of it, just click on comments. It comes to me and I'll go through it. Thanks so much. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. President Trump has not punished senior Saudi leaders. Would you? Yes. And I said it at the time. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered. 
and I believe in the order of the crown prince, we were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. Right. And the only problem is the alternative is Iran. And the only problem is at the time, as brutal as Khashoggi was, and I get it, they were working with other Middle Eastern nations and with a person you don't like, Jared Kushner, in order to get the Abraham Accords. So just, for example, like you don't love dealing with Vietnam because of our 10-year war with them uh, and that they're communists and it's the worst place in the world for journalists, you've still looked at you and say, Vietnam, i got to deal with them because the alternative is China and they don't like China. So you look in a bad region and you say, I'm going to make relations with Vietnam. And that's what he did over the weekend. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's risky because they're also tight with Russia. And we have the highest level now of communication. So how do we know that Vietnam's not going to say, yeah, I just uh, talked to the U.S.? Guess where their battleships are? Guess, uh, guess, the te- guess the technology in which they now are interacting with us with, the communications equipment. Uh, maybe you want to join or check this out. I don't know. But it's a risk, just like making relations with Saudi Arabia is a risk. Now, the Saudi government, from what I've read, not involved in 9-11. Why? Number one, they kicked bin Laden out of their country. Number two is like they bin Laden wanted to kill them. But there's a huge number of members of the royal family in Saudi Arabia. And there might have been some elements who go, yeah, that's extremist Wahhabism. I'm all for it. But for Joe Biden being in this business 50 years, being chairman of foreign relations, just to say I'm going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah nation when you know that we have a military base there, that we know that Iran through proxies – has militarized Somalia, Sudan, uh, excuse me, Yemen, and we're sending rockets into Saudi Arabia because they're looking to take over that country and over Africa, and Saudi Arabia was sending them back because of missiles we gave them and planes we lent them. Yes, they were bombing some civilians. Not great. But every day that Iran's in charge of that nation, it becomes a terror nation, Yemen, and they've dispensed of their government, And Saudi Arabia was a way of getting at that. And they saw a neighbor who's landing missiles in their backyard, and they were upset by it. So it's a complicated thing. He should be explaining that to me. I shouldn't explain that to him. And because of that, they've cut oil production. They've they've poked and prodded him and in turn us. So instead of us saying, okay, we can't trust Saudi Arabia. They're a pariah nation. We're going to drill on our own. We're going to get natural gas on our own. And we're going to have our own domestic oil production. And should they play these games, we will adjust our output too. But he, at the same time, is reducing his leverage by reducing our drilling and reducing our strategic oil reserve because he knows we're more vulnerable than ever. So he played himself into a corner. And I know 9-11 families listening right now go, I hate Saudi Arabia. You know what? You probably hate Iran worse. Because if you look at who's more dangerous, by all counts, it is Iran. And sadly, we do have to make a choice in the world we're in. That's the way it is. Brian Kilmeade Show. BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Listen anytime, anywhere, and also order the podcast. I know I will. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show on 9 11 22 years ago. We're going to be discussing that with Frank Siller. 
and also the sacrifice, the follow-up sacrifice, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan with Israel Del Toro, Air Force Special Ops Paratrooper and author of A Patriot's Promise, protecting my brothers, fighting for my life and keeping my word. Uh, he is all banged up from fighting in the war, and he went back in, uh, and he's serving again, which is unbelievable. Uh, and, of course, you could always get the podcast, BrianKillMeShow.com. And let's see. Let's get. And by the way, I want to hear your reminiscences of where you were on on 9-11. And what do you think about 22 years later, the president not showing up? He's going to be in Alaska 4 o'clock this afternoon. Could easily have scheduled around this. Guy's on vacation all summer. You want to go to Vietnam and cut a deal? I understand that. Rare Earth is over there and a hedge against China. I, I, I don't uh, – I think it's a solid move. But why do you have to get, make it a two-day trip – and not be in New York or at the Pentagon or, or, in, or in Pennsylvania. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Really what this trip was about, it was less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. We're not looking to hurt China. Uh, sincerely. We're all better off if China does well. Really? U.S. versus China. That's what the president's trip was about on the G20. That's what it was about to Vietnam. That's what about with South Korea and Japan at Camp David. Will you please admit it? That China is coming after us every way possible except for a direct hit from fentanyl across our border, from the cyber hits to the cyber attacks to the buzzing our ships to buzzing our planes. What are we talking about? Why are we playing this dance? China's the problem. Say it, Mr. President. Number two. I mean, what week of pregnancy should abortion access be cut off? We need to put back in place the protections of Roe versus Wade. You we need to put back the protections that are in Roe v. Wade. Do you need to be more precise? To. I am being precise. Really? She's not. Uh, 2024, Trump leads everywhere, but not often anywhere. And like, unlike the last two campaigns, he's picking his spots methodically with appearances, interviews, and rallies. I think it's a good move. Meanwhile, President Biden is so weak, his entire party seems worried, and his VP causing even more concern because of answers like you just heard. Number one. We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's speculated that the plane is as big as a 737, which most disturbing, Edie, I think, is the time of morning is when people pour into that building. Yep, 22 years ago today, we went under attack as a nation. We will not forget the lives lost and the play-by-play truly brings it all back. 2,977 lost their lives, over 2,700 in New York alone. We'll discuss it uh, with Frank Siller shortly. But this is how it, this is the president. You know, we always, we used to have a president here. And I know there are times when things come up, uh, let alone a pandemic. Sometimes you don't want to show up until you step out of the White House. You signify the moment that you move back. Where you go to Pennsylvania, the other two spots. Are you okay with it? Some people are. I'm really not. Um, I was on the air that day, and I just think it's one of those times in this generation that you make sure that people understand what you're fighting for. Also, the reason why the president doesn't want to go, number one, he doesn't want to go to New York because his immigration policies are help overriding the city with illegal immigrants. Number two, he doesn't want to answer any questions. And number three, it brings up Afghanistan. Remember where 9-11 attacks were emanated. Uh, they trained in Afghanistan. They made their way here. It was piloted by Afghanistan. Bin Laden was in, Af- in Afghanistan. And we left. And guess who's back? The Taliban stronger with 4 to $7 billion worth of our military hardware. That's an embarrassment for this president. But you can't run from it, I didn't think. How did it sound? What was it like? 
Here's John Scott on 9-11. Uh, actually, I was on the air on, Fo- on Fox and Friends back then. So 2001, 20 minutes left in the show. We hear about a plane hitting a building, and this is how it sounded. Here's a piece of our coverage. Got one. We have a very tragic alert for you right now. An incredible plane crash into the World Trade Center here at the uh, lower tip of Manhattan. It's speculated that the plane is as big as a 737. It looked originally like it, it just hit three floors. As I see from this angle, it seems like more than three floors. And perhaps what's oh, most yeah. disturbing, Edie, I think, is the time of day. This this time of morning is when people pour fall. into that building, and yeah. it, it, it's usually next to full. Then it got worse. Cut to. All we can do is stare aghast at these pictures at this point. You are looking at the uh, north building of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in Manhattan. These are coming to you live now. Debris raining down from 110 floors up. As you can see, this is a clear blue sky day in Manhattan. If this was an accident, it would be a needle in a haystack kind of accident. There was another one. We just saw, we just saw another one. We just saw another one apparently go, another plane just flew into the second tower. This raises, this has to be deliberate, folks. Uh, and it was. And then they were right after, there would be a plane into the Pentagon, and then the second tower would fall. Rick Leventhal was on the ground. Cut six. Oh, my God. It's been a huge explosion. Everyone's running in the other direction. We're on, we're on Church Street. We're not sure what happened. There's been a huge explosion. Everyone's running for their lives, literally. Police, media. I see a woman pushing a baby carriage. Here comes the smoke. Here comes the smoke. I think we better get out of this mess, dude. I think we better get out of this. And that's who they You see, used plumes of smoke just come around the bend. Uh, the tower fell. They didn't get word the tower was going to fall. Uh, I watched some of the replay in 60 Minutes last night. I saw some footage I had not seen before, although I did see most of that piece the year before. But evidently there was a report that they got to the police chief that said the, the one of the buildings is beginning to sway, get everybody out of there. Uh, and instead of going up, they had to get out, but they did not obviously get out in time when you see uh, 343 firefighters lose their uh, lives. And the fact is they'd added 43 more from the cancer agents that were in the air that, that killed uh, these men and women afterwards. Here's the second tower coming down. Cut seven. Here we go again. Here we go again. I, I don't know what's going on, but this, the second building is collapsing, I believe. We can see the top of the building from here. Oh, yeah. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. There it goes. There it goes. Oh. When it comes down, we're. All right. We do need to put it down now. I think we need to put it down now. Here we go. Pretty crazy. And it and, and you hear it in the audio. And this is this is a TV show uh, that we're showing. We're showing you with the, uh, the, the what it looks like visually. It's devastating. But even the audio, sometimes things like that don't transfer. That absolutely transfers. So to me, if if you um, I guess if you're 37, you're 30 years old and 
maybe I can't picture any adult right now not fully understanding the magnitude of 9-11, but things that happened after, things that went back. If you're the president of the United States, even for self, even for political reasons, you don't want to miss it. But maybe those other reasons are the real reasons because they did call it, uh, Afghanistan was their pullout and they have destroyed the city with their illegal immigration policies, which were enabled by the sanctuary city and the right to shelter policies. Uh, but the bigger picture is the president's got to win, run for re-election. And the problem is he's old and his policies suck. And if you ask him, Bidenomics is great. If he asks the American public, uh, they give him a 34 percent approval rating on the uh, on the economy. He talks about the deficit being cut and unemployment being low. Unemployment is low. But I have news for you. It was low in 2019. Right now, we need more jobs than people without jobs. That's the bigger story. How do we fill those other jobs? What have you done to get people involved in the trades? So as Joe Biden walks around saying, look at me, look at what I passed, I see a lot of spending on green programs that the science is not matured enough. And by the way, the American people are not really embracing the electric car. You're jamming down their throats. So is it going to be somebody else? Is it going to be Gavin Newsom? He says no. And that's why he did the interview over the weekend. But also people have noticed that almost every Republican beats Joe Biden head to head. Nikki Haley's got a six point lead. Everything else is in the margin of error, which makes a Trump presidency a possibility. If you want to know the bias of Chuck Todd and why he is out on Meet the Press, not I'm not sure that Kristen Welker will be better, but it has to be better. Just listen to this question. Cut 14 to Gavin Newsom. I think another four years of Donald Trump will break us. Uh, I, I don't I, I hope we don't have to experience that. Um, but I worry about democracy. I worry about the fetishness for autocracy that we're seeing, not just from Trump, uh, but around the world and notably across this country. Uh, I've made the point about DeSantis that I think he's functionally authoritarian. Uh, I'm worried more in many respects about Trumpism, what transcends well beyond uh, his term and time and tenure. I have news for you. Um, I don't think Gavin Newsom minds Donald Trump. I think in many ways he was responsive to him. They kind of had a mutual respect thing going on. Uh, that's why he always goes to DeSantis. one 408 Frank Stiller is coming up next. Tunnel of to the Tower CEO and founder. We know about Stephen Stiller lost his life that day running through the tunnel uh, to the towers. And the Tunnel of to the Towers was born. He'll talk about what this day means to him and his family. Don't move. Remembering 9-11 on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Be advised from our location now. I see heavy smoke coming from the building of the World Trade Center. Also need uh, send me just about anything that you got in this direction. This is to one. He's sending all of my units to the Ferrazano Bridge. I don't know what's going on. What's going on, please? Yourself. 
That is just some of the uh, interactions and the communications on that chaotic day in 9-11, 22 years ago. Frank Silver's heard it all, seen it all, talks to the survivors that, and helps the families like nobody else. Tons of Towers CEO and founder, uh, Frank Siller, started the organization because your brother Stephen did not survive 9-11. He ran through the towers, full gear, uh, through the tunnel, full gear to the towers. Um, great to see you today. There's nobody more important that gets it more than you today. What are your thoughts right now? You know, just listening to your intro in there, listen to the many stories and sounds of 9-11 and the how crazy it was and how hectic it was. And, you know, it was just so unbelievable. You couldn't even realize it was happening while it was happening. It was surreal. Uh, but I, I, I go right back. Like on, on this day, it's just very sad for me, my family. Um, I know exactly when my brother died, when the South Tower came down. There was no, no doubt when it came down that that my brother was in there. I didn't know at that point that he, he had gotten there, um, that he had run through the tunnel, as you just said. But when I was um, home in my house, I gathered my brothers and my sisters together because I know how horrific the day was going to turn out to be. And Are they, you the oldest? I'm, uh, no, I was the my brother Stephen was the youngest of seven. I was the next youngest, and wow. I was 14 years older than Stephen. Wow. My brother Russ was almost 25 years older. So my brother Russ, my brother George, my sister Mary, my sister Gina, myself, my brother-in-law, my son, you know, were all in my, in my living room. And I got a phone call, and it was from a firefighter, Richie Obermeyer, who lived two doors away from my brother Stephen in Staten Island. And he called me up and he says, hey, Frank, um, it's Richie. I just want to let you know that it's bad down here. I said, yeah, Richie, I, I'm, I'm looking. I could see it. I'm with my family. And he goes, you know, I just – no, it's really bad. I said, I know, Richie. I said, uh, I could see it. And he goes, you know, Stephen's on the list of missing firefighters. I said, I know, Richie. I've been talking to the fire department. I've been calling. I've been trying to call Stephen. And he says, no, Frank, you don't understand. Nobody's coming home. And I had to go back in, and my daughter just wrote me a, a note uh, about an hour ago. She was 13 years old at the time as my youngest, uh, now a mother of three and 35, and um, that she saw me drop my head when I got that call. Wow. And I had to go in the other room and tell my siblings, my sister Gina, overcome with emotion, fell to the floor. We held each other. We tried to get off the floor, and and we did. We got off the floor realizing that our next job was to make sure that Sally, Stephen's wife, and the five kids and my brother left behind were – we had to be there uh, for them. And and then and then shortly after, we decided – you know, I said to my sister-in-law, can we start a foundation to honor what Stephen did? I mean, How soon? You know, I'm going to say that I personally had the thought – a week or so after wow. 9-11. But within a couple of weeks, I did talk to Sally, and I said, is it okay? I wanted her blessing. I said, right. you don't have to do anything. You get right. five kids. You know, we're older. You know, we're much older. I was almost 50. You know, my, you know, the rest of my brothers and sisters were, you know, 52, 55, wow. 50, wow. you know, 60. And um, I said, we, we'll do it. We'll do it. And I said, we're just going to honor what Stephen did and, and, and to remember not just him but – all the firefighters and and everyone that perished that day, and she gave it the blessing. And by December of that year, we were already incorporated as a five hundred one three C, and we didn't know what we were going to do. 
And um, I, so a friend of Stephen, Billy Codd, God rest his soul, called me up one day and said, Frank, how about if you have a run? I said, ah, Billy, I don't want to do a dinner or a golf or run. You know, uh, you know. I said, a run, it's beautiful, you know, because it's beautiful. But, wh- you know, where? And he goes, no, not just any run. How about we go through the tunnel like Stephen did? Talk about overcome with emotion. I couldn't even speak. And, you know, when you know the right thing in life, mm-hmm. you know exactly the right thing in life, you have no choice but to do it. And that's why we do the run every year, the last Sunday in September, September 24th this year. And we'll have nearly 40,000 people running now wow. going through that tunnel. And so did you get sanctioned by like the Marath- like New York City Marathon people? You just, just do it. We just did it. We had people laughing at us saying – I just don't know anything about putting a run on, putting an event on. I said, yeah, but don't worry. I was a businessman. I was a bit of an entrepreneur, and I wasn't worried about it because, once again, when you hear the right thing, you have no choice. You just you just, just have do it. you just have to do it. And now, how big is it? Like I said, nearly forty thousand people. We have firefighters from all over the country that come in. I mean, thousands of them running gear, you know, and police officers as well, and. How many men and women that serve our country come in rucks, you know, a ruck, you know, rocket, and twenty five hundred West Point cadets run through the tunnel, wow. chanting, uh, you know, uh, and they stand there as an honor guard for our injured service members that we go off, you know, an hour before the run really starts, you know, we have all the injured guys and women that you know that we built smart homes for, you know, go go first, and so we it, it was just it was just the right thing to do. Look. We decided to build smart homes for our country's most catastrophically injured because the first ever was from Staten Island, Brenda, Morocco. I was there visiting him. I said, can we build you a home? And once you built that home, you have no choice anymore. <laughs> you got to keep going. You got to keep on going. Lou and Ramos, when they were assassinated, uh-huh. Detectives Lou and Ramos. And now you're doing first responders, cops, when, everybody. When they were did, did, uh, in December of uh, uh, 2014, when we paid off their mortgages the Christmas before, we knew it was the right thing, and now we're doing hundreds a year. Frank Siller, thanks so much. Great to see you. T2T.org. Help out Tunnel Towers. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this, of course, 22 years since 9-11. It was great to see Frank Siller in studio at Tunnel Towers. Uh, he's not just helping people who are victims of 9-11. Uh, 2,750 lost their lives that day, uh, mo- most the majority of which in New York, and the cancer victims that follow up. But what about the war that happened right after? That's in Afghanistan and then, of course, in Iraq. With me in studio is the author of A Patriot's Promise, Protecting My Brothers, Fighting for My Life, and Keeping My Word, Israel Del Toro, Air Force Special Ops Paratrooper. Uh, uh, Israel, great to see you. Hey, thanks, Brian. It's great to see you, too. Great to see you again. Um, so you went through uh, – what made you join the military? You know, honestly, it's like I was 22 years old. Uh, I was a lot older. Uh, and, you know, I had a very good-paying job, but I just felt like I wasn't being challenged. Like I, something inside of me, you know, I helped raise my, my brothers and sisters honoring that promise. Your, I dad, my dad. your, your parents died young. Your dad died young. Yeah, I, I lost my dad in 1988 when I was 12. And then a year and a half later, I lost my mom uh, to a drunk driver. Uh, so I was the oldest. And you know, the last thing my dad ever asked me to do was promise to take care of your family. So that's what I did. So when I was 22, you know, all my brothers and sisters were already a little older. And I just felt like I wasn't challenged. And I saw a commercial. I was like, why not? No one in my family has ever joined. And 
you know, I grew up on the age of Rambo. Who didn't want to be Rambo our, our age, you know? You want to have that long hair, chiseled body. Yeah. I was like, I don't have the long hair anymore. And my son likes to say I got a dad bod. But, you know, I wanted to be that guy. So I'm like, you know what? Let's go check it out. And that's how I went to a recruiter and asked and told him what I can do. I was like, okay, let's do it. And, and I signed up. And so what was what year is that? So that was uh, June of 1997 when I joined. To 1997. Much different time. Much different time. You knew terror was out there because we had the the coal explosion in 2001, I guess. 98 was the embassy bombings. 93 was the bombings in World Trade Center. Right. Um, Kahani was assassinated in 1990. So you did you know about the Islamic threat? Did they talk about that? I, I knew about it, obviously, you know, being, being a, a special warfare operator. We get intel on that, you know, once, you know, like I graduated and got into my unit, you know about that. And but one, you're thinking, well, it's 97, you know, nothing's really going on. You know, all we're doing is training, getting ready if anything happens. But in your head, you're like, okay, well, this is going to be my normal everyday, you know, job, working out, train my, get a proficiency in my skill and, and see what happens. Where were you on 9-11? I was at Fort Bragg. And we, did you watch on TV? Yeah, so I was in a class, and a guy comes in and says, hey, uh, the towers just got hit. And we're thinking, what? I was like, we're thinking a Cessna or something. And he turns on the TV, and that's when we see the second plane hit. And I was uh, I'm, I'm ready, and that's why we had a pager back then. You know, we didn't have cell phones, but we had pagers. And our pager went off, and I was like, told the, the sergeant, hey, sergeant, I got to go. I got to go back to my unit. He's like, roger that. And I get to my unit, it's just chaos. Everyone's weapons are being laid out because we're like, we're going to war. And and how soon to you were in Afghanistan? So for me, I didn't go on the initial push. Uh, I, I didn't get out there until 2004, I want to say. Uh, before that, I went to Iraq because I had just gotten back from Bosnia. So they weren't going to send me out literally again, yeah. you know, three months later. I was like, sorry. I was like, you got to take wait your turn, which... Yes, it, it hurt because I, wanted, to, I wanted to go. I was like, I'm ready. I was like, dude, he just got back. I was like, let these other guys go. And was I a little jealous? Yes, because I saw a lot of my guys just crush it out there, you know, because uh, you know, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to defend our country for after those attacks. And so pay. how soon we, did you get over there? So about 2004 was when I went out there. And then how soon after that did you get hit? I got hit uh, a year later when I went back in 2005. In December, and and that's when uh, everything changed. What happened? Uh, so I was on a mission with the scout team, and we we're coming back from our mission. We crossed this creek, and no more than 200 meters after we crossed this creek, we felt this intense heat blast on the left side. And I was like, "Holy crap, we just got hit!" And you know, people talk about how your life flashes in front of you, but I never really believed that. Uh, but all these images come, started coming through my head, and then. You know, something in there in my head says, you got to get out of this truck. And I get out of the truck, but when I got out, I was on fire from head to toe. You were just on fire? I was on fire. Any way you describe that pain? It, I, honestly, I didn't feel anything. I, 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 you know, I knew I was on fire, but I, it didn't hurt. Uh, but I tried to run to that creek. But the old flames overtook me, and I collapsed, and I'm just laying there. And I'm thinking, this is it. You know, I broke my promise to my family to always come back. Broke my promise to my son that I'll never let him grow up with eyes out like like I did. But most importantly, I broke that promise I made to my dad so so many years ago that I'll take care of my family. And then that's when one of my teammates says, "DT, you're not dying here." Helps me up, and we both jumped in the creek to extinguish the flames. 
Wow. Uh, Israel Del Toro, our guest, his book is called The Patriots Promise, Protecting My Brothers, Fighting for My Life, and Keeping My Word. So after that, how do they get you home? So, you know, uh, they head away from the medevac. And, but at the same time, I still had to call an airstrike because my time, my team was being ambushed. You had to call an airstrike. Yeah, that's my job. I'm the guy that calls an airstrike. And I remember the medic wanted to take care of me. He's like, no, I'm okay. Take care of our gunner, Bailey, because he got thrown out and the Humvee had rolled over his legs. I said, take care of him. I'm okay. And I did what I had to do. I got all the coordination. But by the time the last uh, statement went out to get an aircraft in here, I started getting scared. You know, I'm never going to stand up here as much as I wanted to say. I was like Rambo. Nothing hurt me. I had no fear. I started getting scared because the adrenaline started coming down. I started to have a hard time breathing. And I was getting tired. And I just wanted to sleep. And I even asked the medic, hey, man, let me just close my eyes. But he knew if he let me fall asleep, I'm not going to wake up again. So he kept kept me fighting, helped me find my spark. Like, say, we all have a spark. Uh, that keeps us going, keeps us fighting, which was my son. And he kept me going until the helicopter came, and I remember they wanted to carry me. I was like, no, I walked into this fight. I'm going to walk out. And I get in the helicopter. I remember being in and out, a consciousness on the helicopter, uh, remembering in our forward operating base, landing there, them taking to the the field hospital, seeing the doctor cutting off my watch and saying, you're going to be okay. That was December 4th, 05. I wake up March of 06. Wow. So you were in a, a coma. Coma for four months. Did he keep, they keep you in a coma? They kept me in a induced coma. Because they wanted your skin to heal on its own and was knew it was going to be, the so, pain was going to be unbelievable? So so what happens with like severely burned patients, uh, it ain't the burns that kills us, it's the infection. So when you're severely burned, like I had third degree burns on 80% of my body, you pretty much get skinned alive because I got to get that infection off you. And now that you lost that outer layer of skin inside the room, they got to keep it at like around 97, 98 degrees. And anyone that comes in has to be covered from head to toe. Uh, so, you know, most people don't realize they think it's the barrage that kills kills one. But no, it's, it's the infection. It was lonely too, right? It, it is. Uh, when I finally woke up, the nighttime was, I hated the nighttime. Because uh, I couldn't move because all my, obviously, all my muscles had atropine. I had a trach, and I had this, like, little tube that would kind of suck out the, uh, the saliva. And at nighttime, it was the worst for me because I thought I was going to drown in my sleep. Wow. Uh, it wasn't for two nurses, you know, a nurse named Bonnie and a nurse named Kim. Anytime I knew they were working, I knew I was going to be okay. But when they weren't there, I was terrified. Wow, you could still remember. How many years ago was that now? You're talking about... 2000, that's what that would have been. I woke up March of 06. Seven, eight years ago. Yeah, so 06, so no, that's about more. Was it 15, yeah. 16, 17? So how long did it take for you to come back on your, uh, get back on your feet? It took me, I want to say, till when I was strong enough, I felt strong enough, was 2009. How many so surgeries three, did you have? I've had over 150-plus wow. procedures done on me. And so I could see your hands. Did you lose your fingers on one hand? Yeah, I lost my fingers on uh, my left hand. Uh, and then my second hand, I lost them to the first knuckle. Uh, and so for a long time, I didn't have a prosthetic. And when they finally gave me one, it was – I felt weird. Like I felt more at ease or able to do more things without the prosthetic. And that's why I never wear it. The only time I really wear it is like if I go talk to like school children – 
because they think it's cool. They think it's, oh, it's, just, it's like right. a robot, <laughs> you know. Well, because they like it. Do you think that maybe the technology will get better and you'll be able to control it? I, I, I think so, but I'm so used to it now. Like right. I could, I can do everything. You know, I work out, I bench, you know. Obviously, I adapt stuff for, for me so I can do a lot more stuff. But, yes, right. am I limited on a lot of the things I can't, used to be able to do? Yes, but and, I'm still and enjoying life. So now, how long did, when you come back home and you get used to your new situation, what was that like? For me, I think it was more the biggest fear of my son seeing me because that was, that was the scariest part for me because, you know, I saw my son August of 05 uh, on his birthday and I hadn't seen him since. And he couldn't be in the hospital with me, obviously, because, you know, he's three years old at the time. And I remember coming home and well, before that, you know, I had saw my face one time. Because again, that's a lot of a lot of things. Other you know, people don't understand about burn patients; they cover the mirrors up because they want to ease you into your transition of what you look like now. Obviously, I could look at myself, my body wise, like okay, I'm missing digits here. But in your head, you're thinking like you still look like yourself. You know, yeah, burns eyebrows, you know, burnt hair. But when I first saw myself, I broke down. It's the only time I ever wished I died, uh, and it wasn't a thing like a vanity thing. It was like, my God, at the time I was 30 years old, and if I thought I was a monster, what's my three-year-old son going to think? And I remember my wife and uh, my physical therapist, this guardian angel, you know, Gary, this six-foot-five, bald white dude, they're just sitting there, and they're trying to console me. It's like, don't give up, DT. So many people look up to you. It's like, I don't care. I was like, they see what the pain you go through and how you keep going. You know, not motivate the service members, but you motivate the staff. Like, don't care. I should have died. And then they say, DT, all your son wants is dad. That's all he really wants. So that calmed me down, but it was always still in the back of my head. So when I finally saw my son, my wife calls him. Uh, she says, Wero. You know, we call him Wero <laughs> in Spanish. It's his little nickname. It means little white boy. Uh, I was like, Wero, my papi's home. So he comes running out and sees me and stops. And I'm like, holy crap, he's scared of me. All these fears are rushing back. Then he just looks at me, tilts his head to the side, says, Papi? He's like, yeah, buddy. Comes up, gives me the most amazing hug, most amazing moment I've ever had since watching him being born. And of course, my wife's like, don't hurt your dad. I'm a quiet woman. Let me hold my boy. Right. But that was, for me, that was the scariest part. So he was five at this time? No, he was still three. Oh, he was still three? Yeah, he was going to turn four. Oh, okay. Yeah, but he was three. Uh, that was really the... The scariest part for me, the hardest part, everything else, it didn't matter because I knew that my, my son loved me and my wife loved me and my friends were there for me. So anything else was cakewalk for me. No, I can understand that. And now you go, I have a good idea. Why don't I get back into the military? <laughs> what, what was your wife's reaction when you said that? Well, I wasn't too happy, you know. She's and that like, made history, didn't it? It, it did. You know, uh, she's, she's like – why do you want to continue serving? Haven't you given enough? And and people also will say the same thing. Why do you want to keep serving? It's like you started. I started to kind of public speak. It's like, dude, you can make a lot of money, and that's true. Yeah, there's some public speakers who make a lot of money, but I used to tell them, I was like, man, there's people out there that make tons of money and hate their job. So why am I going to give up something I truly love? I love being an operator. I love being a tech which is my career field. I love serving my country. I love being in the Air Force. 
So why am I going to give that up for a couple bucks? And it took a while to convince people to let me stay in. Uh, do I wish I was still downrange? Yes, but I knew <laughs> I couldn't do that. Unless we become like Star Wars and I get a cool Luke Skywalker hand. I right. use a Jedi mind Which trick. Could happen. It could happen. But at the time, it couldn't. But I knew I could teach. My mind was there. And, and I was able to convince him. And on February 2010, that's when I became the first 100% disabled airman ever to re-enlist in the Air Force. Wow. And how's it going now? It's good. You know, I retired August of 2019 after 22 years. Because uh, you know, I, you know, I instructed that I went to the Olympic Training Center to train as a para athlete. Then after that, went to the Air Force Academy and taught cadets how to skydive. Uh, I think that was my wife was more mad at me and my family <laughs> going back jumping because they're like, "Are you serious? Are you really going to start jumping again?" Wow. Uh, this part it's all the continuation. Nine eleven happens. You're in the military, ready. You go fight and you paid the price, but you're still giving back to the country. Uh, I am. And I inspiring. I am. I, I see it really as a continue to honor that promise I made to my dad. Yes, that promise first involved my, my brothers and sisters, my mom, but it has evolved now to anyone that feels like they're having a bad day, that like they can't get out of that rabbit hole. And I, like I said earlier, we all have a spark. Sometimes we can find it on our own, and sometimes you need help. Sometimes you need to hear a story or a journey someone went through, and, and that's what I do. I, I see them as my family now to try and help them get out of that rabbit hole and keep fighting and seeing the joy in life. It's amazing. Amazing family you have, too. Israel uh, Del Toro, if you want to do something good today, pick up his book, A Patriot's Promise, Protecting My Brothers, Fighting for My Life, and Keeping My Word. Great to see you again. Yeah, Brian, it's great to see you. Also. Great to see you, especially on 9-11. Uh, back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade Show. The Brian Kilmeade Show remembers 9-11. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, it's good news about Al-Qaeda. Uh, I think ISIS is actually uh, the more enduring threat right now. Uh, Al-Qaeda is torn with internal theocratic debates. ISIS uh, is not. And I do believe that ISIS, particularly in Afghanistan, is taking advantage of the vast ungoverned spaces that are there. And I believe they are, in fact, gathering strength. I would not dispute the judgment on Al-Qaeda. So they, uh, that is General Frank McKenzie, who authored The Exit, and he has many regrets from Afghanistan. And he says al-Qaeda, they claim, is not there, but ISIS is, which is derivative and offshoot of that. Here's more from McKenzie. Cut 32. Your uh, successor, the current CENTCOM commander, said ISIS could do an external operation against the U.S. in under six months. <clears throat> How should Americans understand that threat from Afghanistan? Well, I believe ISIS has always wanted to attack us here in our homeland. It's a core tenet, a core belief of theirs. And one of the reasons that uh, we were in Afghanistan was to prevent the use of that country as a base from which to gather strength and either to direct or inspire attacks on our homelands or the homelands of our allies. As a result of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, it is now far more difficult for us to pursue those objectives. No kidding. Uh, that was the point that should have been made. Uh, to President Trump, and I think ultimately if he was there, that we still would have had a presence there. People would have been mad at that. Um, the people would have faulted him at that. But I, I think it's in our best interest. We just needed somebody to explain. By being there every day, there's two or three hundred people 
that learn about Western values, learn about that women uh, should have rights, learn they don't uh, belong. Uh, they belong in the workplace, much like they do in other Middle Eastern countries. Get out of the caveman era that the Taliban's in. Every day they would have a chance to stand up and possibly get rid of Ghani, who, who we know is worthless. But that was never explained to the American people who are not clamoring to get out of Afghanistan. I know it was not an easy rotation, but people understand if the, we leave, Al-Qaeda comes back. ISIS comes back. Al-Qaeda in Iraq comes back. That's the existence that happens. Now they got a country. And they got $4 billion of our equipment. Full circle. Brian Kilmeade, thanks so much for listening. Go to briankilmeade.com. Uh, you can pre-order my book, Teddy and Booker T. Uh, two American icons blaze the path towards racial equality. Don't move. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.